Welcome to the Scatter Podcast. I'm your host, Javier Uraca. Welcome to the 24th episode of the Scatter Podcast. On this episode, I've got guest Christina Stathopoulos, analytical consultant at Google and adjunct professor at the IE Business School in Madrid. I met Christina about a year ago on LinkedIn, and we just kept up talking about the analytics and data science space. And so it was really exciting for me to actually chat with her live and have her on this podcast. She graduated from the IE Business School in 2016, and and for those of you who aren't aware of this business school, it's one of the top-rated business schools in the world. She graduated with a Master's of Science in their Business Analytics and Big Data program, and so she definitely has a unique international spin on the data science journey. At Google, she helps clients navigate marketing and ROI goals. At the IE Business School, as an adjunct professor, she teaches an MBA course on analytics. So it's really interesting hearing her talk about, you know, some of the challenges that non-technical MBA students might have, as well as some of the things they really gravitate towards and excel at from a business analytics perspective. She's involved with a few initiatives that I I really admire about her. She's part of the I Am Remarkable program at Google. She's a facilitator with that initiative, and it's to empower women and underrepresented groups to speak openly about their accomplishments in the workplace. Just really neat stuff that she's doing there. And she founded the A Book a Week Challenge to encourage people to challenge themselves to read more often and pick up a book and try and finish it in a week. That's actually how I first came across her on LinkedIn. I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Scatter Podcast and give this episode a like so that you stay current on trends and the most recent episodes. All right. Enjoy the show. Here we go. Christina, it's good to have you on the Scatter Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Especially having someone like you on the podcast that I feel like we've sort of developed a LinkedIn friendship over the last year. So it's nice to finally be able to chat with you. Yeah, of course. So tell us a bit about your background. You know, you've attended the North Carolina State University. You then went to Madrid for the IE Business School. How did your education and experiences lead to a career in advanced analytics at Google and also lecturing at the IE Business School? So my journey towards this field started from a very young age. Um, I was a weird kid, actually, and my favorite classes were mathematics and statistics. Um, And I was even asked to take the SAT when I was 12 years old, and I scored quite high on the quantitative section. So from there, my parents encouraged me to continue my learning by taking college-level math and statistics courses during all of high school. Um, And that led me to my initial studies in civil engineering at NC State, like you mentioned. But I quickly realized that engineering wasn't for me. So I switched into an interdisciplinary field called science, technology, and society, where I also pursued a focus in statistics. And all of this, it easily connected back to big data and advanced analytics. And at that time, I didn't know that it would become such a popular field later on. A few years ago, I did my master's in business analytics and big data at IE Business School, um, and everything really fell into place from there. I, I love working with numbers, so this feels like the perfect field for me, 
and especially considering that I get to work in the corporate world at Google and also share my knowledge in the academic world by teaching at IE. Yeah, that's really exciting. And so just in general, you know, you've been in Spain in Madrid now for a, a few years, I think four or five years. How would you compare kind of Spanish living to American living? Yeah, so it's actually been seven years. It's been a long time for me in, in Madrid. I never expected to be here this long. Um, but how I would compare it, so there's a lot of cultural differences, obviously. I'm from North Carolina, um, and moving to Madrid, Spain was was a shock at the start. Um Personal life, I mean, it has all the, the typical cultural differences that you would expect. You know, I had to learn a new language. I didn't know Spanish when I moved to, to Spain, but now I'm practically fluent. I work in Spanish all day. And then other, you know, cultural differences that kind of creep into the office life. So in Spain, you typically start later at work compared to the U.S. People usually start between 9 and 10 o'clock. And 10 o'clock is, is totally normal. It's not late at all. But on the downside, it means that you leave the office pretty late. Also, I would say other cultural differences. It's very, Spain is, it's a very like social culture. So it's very common that your team has lunch together all the time, every day. Whereas I'm used to being a more, I guess, independent solo person. I like to have lunch on my own and maybe read a book. Whereas in Spain, it's very, you know, everybody wants to be together and socializing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm actually a big fan of leaving the office for group lunches. So I didn't know that aspect of it. I, and I love sidewalk cafes lining all the streets of Madrid and Barcelona and some of the other Spanish cities. I just think it's a very uh, relaxed and welcoming kind of environment. Yeah, no, it definitely is. So at Google, what kind of analytics and modeling are you working on regularly? And who are typically your stakeholders? Are they internal or external? Yeah, so my stakeholders are external clients. Um, and I work with them to, to practically integrate our products and our data offerings with their own data to improve marketing and expansion performance. And the type of analytics and modeling varies per project but most of it involves descriptive or diagnostic analytics. That's how I would classify it. Although do not let that fool you in the level of complexity. So I work on a lot, a lot on building dashboards from raw data to track anything from marketing campaign performance or the progress of audiences to niche things like mobile site load speed, for example. And these can be built to send automatic notifications to the users when certain limits are exceeded. Projects can also move into predictive analytics as well, like predicting which online audiences perform best within certain marketing campaigns or maybe the impact of website changes on conversion rates. The complexity usually comes from the use of quite raw data at the start and the mix of different data sources. So one of the most common types of data that I use is data from the equivalent of the Google Ads API. And then this can be mixed with other types of data, like, for example, data from the web page test API. Without disclosing any client names, can you give a few examples of, of at least the type of projects that you've worked on on these Google engagements? Yeah, I can give like a light description. So... My specific role as an analytical consultant, it varies a lot within the company. Some are more consulting focused, while others are more technical data focused. 
and, and I fall on the latter side, more technical data focused. And my projects depend on what my clients need at the time. Most of mine are online marketing focused, of course, since that's the core business of Google. So for example, um, there could be projects to track and understand the performance of different types of audiences. This is something easy, I think, for, for everyone to understand. Google Ads offers various audiences for you to show your ads to, which are like similar users grouped together. And there's different, there's many different options. There's remarketing, there's in-market buyers, there's affinity audiences, et cetera. And there's so many different types and you can combine them together and you can also play with different features. So imagine that a client wants to track and analyze their performance. I would be in charge of defining the specifics with my client's data science team. And then I would pull the data from the back end and build an automated tracking system. And with the right dashboard, we should be able to track which audiences are performing the best and where, and then play with different features to improve their performance over time. Are you doing any type of journey path modeling or trying to understand kind of the different touch points someone might visit or click on? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of that done. Um, you're talking about like attribution modeling, things like that. Um, yeah. and, we, and we do work on that. Um, a lot of it is also automated within Google Ads. It's gotten so advanced that um, you can do that. But there is um, there are projects like that. I haven't been too deeply involved with things like that, though. Okay, got it. I, I'm sure people are talking about ways to do this, but it'd be really neat to see if, I don't know, maybe some kind of like high-frequency audio pattern or something coming out of your radio or coming out of your television, if somehow that could send a signal to your phone or a computer or, you know, some other connected device so that people like yourself could actually begin to capture offline sources. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of, you know, estimation. Yeah, for sure. You, I know. You really can't track that so well yet. That's yeah. So at Google, are you using a mix of proprietary tools or enterprise software or, you know, open source tools? We're free to use whatever tools we want, but I typically use proprietary Google tools. Sometimes others at work use things like R, Python, Tableau, etc. And although I know how to use most of those, I focus my work within the Google ecosystem for now. So besides internal tools for handling Google data, I work with a lot of the tools made for public use, like Data Studio for data visualization and BigQuery for analyzing massive data sets and for storing data for clients. And then kind of related, I also use Asana as my project and task management platform. Okay, and, and at Google, do you get continuous training and education on tools? Oh yeah. We have like endless access to, to education, whether it be through um, internal courses made only for employees or external courses that you as well could access. But a lot of, you know, those paid courses we would get for free being Google employees. That's great. One thing that's talked about at length in the analytics and data science realm is the data cleanup, sanitation, pre-processing. It's not only one of the most critical steps, but it, it takes a long time. From your perspective and the work that you're doing as an analytics consultant, do you think this is true? And, and how much of your time would you estimate is spent on data cleaning and pre-processing? 
It's definitely true. Uh, data reprocessing is the most critical step in data analysis, but it's also the most time consuming. Um, I spend a lot of my time cleaning, manipulating, organizing data for the final purpose. I would say minimum 50% of my time. And even more so if you include the time that I need to actually find the data. Can you expand on what a typical data cleanup and pre-processing example might look like for you? Sure. So I always start by obviously searching for the data that I need. And we can focus on online marketing data, um, since that's the, you know, the core business of Google, which is all via Google Ads. So in that case, I might start with the Google Ads API. I would spend a solid amount of time searching for where I can pull the right data, which could be anywhere from 10 to 30% of my time, depending on the type of data needed and the complexity. Um, and, and once I have the data ready, I would move into the pre-processing step. Here I may do things like date manipulation, anything like turning timestamps into day, month, and year type columns. Um, also categorizing qualitative data, removing outliers or irrelevant data, and merging data sources. Okay, and, and piggybacking off of the merging of data sources, I imagine you're also consolidating multiple large data sources. Can you expand on some of those efforts of just what to do with disparate data sources? Yeah, so merging different data sources is quite complex in the Google world because most of the data sets are incredibly massive and detailed, much more so than in my past employers. You have to be careful when combining data sources, you probably know, because you need to make sure that you're doing the join correctly and you're not you know, making small mistakes, for example, duplicating rows that you shouldn't. Um, and understanding one massive data source is complicated enough, but combining it with others multiplies the complexity. You also have to make sure that the granularity of the data sets is compatible. Like, for example, if one is at daily level and another is at weekly, then you'll obviously need to manipulate the data in order to combine them. So those are very simple examples, but it can give you an idea of where merging problems start. Okay, got it. Yep. So... As tedious as the traditional corporate goal setting process is, there are certainly benefits to goal setting and performance reviews, especially when you're at you know a larger global corporation such as Google. I think in general, some of the best managers I've worked for have practiced kind of continuous constructive feedback. So there's nothing that ever pops up during like a end of year or mid year review. Can you share? a little bit about how Google measures the success of individuals as well as of your peers? Yeah, so Google is pretty well known for their OKR system, so objectives and key results. And we have to set our goals quarterly, reviewing them with our manager at the beginning of the quarter to agree on them, and then measuring their completion at the end of the quarter. And they can be a mix of short and long-term goals. And every single employee has to do this at Google. It's a very strong part of the company culture. Even our CEO, Sundar, has to do them. And they're available internally, so you can read your peers' OKRs. And your success is directly measured by the completion of your OKRs, which allows for clarity and transparency. Um, and to keep you on track, it's typical to do weekly or bi-weekly checkups with your manager. So what if a large, urgent project comes your way 
that suddenly pushes things that you had previously had on your OKRs, kind of pushes that to the sideline. And now you're working on something that has sort of started to consume your time. How how do you deal with the situation there? Do you have flexibility to sort of update your OKRs to, to include this new urgent project you're working on? Very good question. And this happens a lot. In that case, um, you would you would review the the priority of the project. Let's say you would measure it with your manager and you would decide in that moment whether you need to deprioritize some of your OKRs and maybe add this new one. Um, and, th- and this very often happens because you can't predict, you know, what could pop up within the next quarter. Anything could happen. That has been my experience as well. Yeah. <laughs> so at Google, what do you think is on the horizon in terms of data analytics and visualizations? So this is just my opinion, but um, I think there's a huge focus, not only in Google, but across tech companies. Um, on the expansion of the public cloud, which I think is very related to all of this, working on the cloud. And related to that, I see a move toward democratization of data analytics. And I mean making advanced technologies and methods available to all, and not just big corporations with lots of cash flow left to invest. So I imagine a continued movement towards more open technologies, and more intuitive advanced analytics, like an ease in using machine learning. I personally hope to see more on the side of like Google Colab or these shared programming notebooks that also tap into these GPUs. Oh, I I love that stuff. (laughs) So while you are a full-time employee of Google, you're also an adjunct professor and lecturer at the IE Business School. What, What subjects are you teaching there? I teach courses in big data, analytics, and machine learning for MBA students at IE. I'm an adjunct professor, so I only do this part-time on the side of my core work at Google. And my courses are adapted for students from any background, since MBA programs are full of technical and non-technical students. I usually start from the basics and I build up, always using simple terminology to explain complex topics to them. And my goal is always to spark like an spark an interest in my students to to pursue this field further. And I love seeing the results after the course because I always have a few students from each class reach out to me saying how the course really opened their eyes. Oh, that's great feedback to receive. And, and assuming a lot of these MBA students don't come with a heavy technical background, What's the initial reaction to an analytics class from someone that doesn't have a technical discipline? At first, most students, especially these these non-technical ones, they don't know what to expect and they come to the classes hesitant. But by the end of the class, they love it. I dedicate a lot of time into the planning of my classes because I want to show just how fun and also how important analytics and related fields are. So especially those that come from a non-technical background seem to be the most impacted by my classes as they're the ones who have seen, you know, news articles, they've heard references at work, but they've never truly understood this topic before. I'm able to give them at least the, the intro knowledge and tips on how to further expand their knowledge after my courses. And I'm seeing a growth and in interest in the industry simply because more and more students are requesting my types of classes from the university. Analytics classes are being requested across programs, 
instead of just being offered to master and big data students, like it always was, analytics courses are expanding into and even being expected in master's programs like business and law. Yeah, it's a very exciting space to be in. My own personal experience here is that, you know, having just graduated from a business analytics program, at least at my school, the University of California, Irvine, this is the fastest growing major within the business school. So there's definitely a lot of interest, I think, globally for, you know, analytics and data science and kind of the the merging of that with business. Yeah, for sure. I'm seeing it all the time. For analytics students and data science students and just people passionate about data who are considering pivoting towards the space, do you believe there's a skills shortage right now in the data arena? And do you think there's enough skilled data scientists to fill these opening positions? Uh, Absolutely. I think there's a shortage of skills because finding the right talent is very tricky. But I see this improving, um, as we've just mentioned as well, because there's many new programs um, popping up in big data and analytics, whether they are, you know, dedicated master's programs or elective classes for the MBA groups. And then you've also got things like boot camps that are very popular now, hackathons, datathons. There's plenty of free online courses, there's coding workshops, et cetera, et cetera. So over time, I see this gap filling adequately. But I think that technology will always stay ahead. So I see us kind of playing a game of catch up because although basic data science positions will be filled, more will be popping up in advanced machine learning, for example. And then that will have a new skills gap that must be filled. So I'm imagining this turning into a cycle where new gaps are appearing as the field advances and us being reactive and having to create equivalent educational programs to train for those new positions. That makes sense. I'm also curious to know your thoughts on, um, I feel like right now to be a data scientist, it's so nondescript. I feel like people over the next five to 10 years in these fields are going to have titles that are really more representative of the type of data work that they are doing. Meaning, like right now, I think there's somewhat of like confusion in the corporate world because unless you're at a corporation that has very mature data scientists and data science groups, probably trying to hire for data scientists and not really knowing what it is they can bring to the table. You might think you need an AI, PhD, some math whiz, when in fact you just need someone who can do SQL queries very well, right? The whole distinction between data engineer or data analyst or even like marketing data analyst or marketing data scientist, is that something that you're sensing too or not really? Yeah, because I speak about that in my classes. Um, I try to explain this, especially in the MBAs. I think it's very important for them because they might go on to work on teams where they're either interacting with, you know, the data science team, data engineers, et cetera, or even managing them. And I try to explain to them exactly what you were describing, which um, for me, what I see is that data scientist has a different meaning in every single company. I mean, it's not something that's across the board. Every company treats it differently. And then on top of that, like you said, it's like there's new positions branching off from that. A data engineer does something specific. You even have like, you know, a machine learning engineer specifically doing machine learning projects. Whereas in another company, you would have just a data scientist um, that is handling all this. 
And then next to it, you have another company that has a data scientist who might only be working in Excel and doing even basic projects that might have been classified as an analyst in the past. So I think there's a bit of confusion on the title data scientist. Personally, I'm not qualified as a data scientist within Google. I'm considered an analytical consultant, which is different. And I would say probably the tech companies have this most figured out because they have a lot of different technical positions that are that are very defined in what is expected of them. Um, they do have data scientists, they have data engineers, they have you know everything. Um, so I, I agree with you completely, and I'm hoping in the next years things start to branch off and things become more defined. Yeah, agreed. Yep. As a woman in the field, do you feel that there's truly a gender gap? For sure. I have a lot to say about this, actually, because I'm very passionate about it. So unfortunately, I see a clear gender gap across STEM fields. Focusing on the U.S. market alone and looking across the entire tech sector, um, I looked it up and market research shows that women only make up 20% of tech jobs, even though they make up half of the overall workforce. And this number gets even worse in other countries. And worst of all, focusing on the management level in the U.S. tech world, the more senior the position, the lower percentage of women represented. At the executive level, only 10% of roles are held by women. And I would attribute this to four main reasons, although I think there's a lot of factors in play here. So the first one I would say is this discouragement from a young age, because little girls are, are nurtured to lean towards feminine careers, whether that be housekeeping, housewife, interior design, fashion, etc. So whether we mean to or not, little girls are not encouraged to develop their skills in mathematics, product design, construction, etc., like little boys are. A second reason I would say is this unconscious bias that causes education systems and companies to to discourage women to pursue a career in tech. And then three, I would say, is a lack of proper guidance or mentorship. There's a huge lack, you know, since we don't have a lot of female leaders yet in the field, there remains a huge lack of female mentors as well to help morale, keep morale high and also to lead the way for newcomers. And then my last... Um, reason. It's kind of an uncomfortable one to talk about, but I don't think we can ignore it. And um, it's that a lot of times we're thinking, you know, like men are bringing women down, but there's a huge problem of women against women instead of women supporting women. So we need to reverse that trend and make sure that we're helping each other. So like I said, I think there's a lot of other reasons, but these are four of the core ones for me. And then the problem with all of this what what implications is it having in the tech world? Um, the I would say the core problem here is that if you have a lack of women in the workplace, it means that you you are not reflecting the user base of your final products. Whatever your final product is, you're probably you know marketing selling to the entire population, and 50% of them are women. So this is not just a matter of being fair in the workplace. But gender imbalance can lead to worse decision-making and lower profits for a company because you simply don't understand half of your user base if you don't have women helping make decisions. That is excellent feedback. I really yeah. appreciate all that. So 
how do you recommend we overcome this type of thing? Yeah, good question. So there's many things that you can do about it. And I think a lot of companies are doing it nowadays. The problem is that this is very ingrained in our culture, unfortunately. So it's going to be a step-by-step process to fix it. Diversity and inclusion initiatives in all corporations can help. A commitment by companies to push towards diversity all the way up to the boardroom is very important. Um, Tougher punishments in cases of discrimination or harassment and also mentorship programs specifically for women would help a lot. Okay, thank you. If you're able to, can you discuss any initiatives at Google for improving diversity in women in leadership? Yeah, there's lots of them. So Google has an official diversity and inclusion committee that, of course, works to make Google into a workforce that reflects the world around it. There's also many ERGs in Google, and it stands for Employee Resource Groups. So there are chapters globally that allow Googlers to connect with a network of people who share similar values of diversity. For example, you have the Disability Alliance for Googlers affected by disabilities, Gaglers for supporting LGBT employees, you have specific cultural or race groups, and then you have women at Google, which is the one that I play an active part in. All of the groups have their own goals, and women at Google, um, as you can find on the web as well, you can find a lot of details about this, but they have a lot of different initiatives to help empower women at Google, um, to bring them together, connect them, make sure they're developing um, within the workplace, make sure that we're retaining female talent, as well to create a culture of inclusion, make sure there's no you know, harassment, discrimination, things like that. And then also lots of fun events where you can get together, you know, as a group of women and and men as well, supporters, making social impact in local communities, um, like giving back to the community and and having women in tech events, for example. There's many networking opportunities within the company and you have chances to, to join mentoring programs. And one of my favorite initiatives is called I Am Remarkable. So I'm a facilitator for I Am Remarkable workshops. And they are 90-minute in-person sessions with small groups. um, And you work to empower women and minorities in the workplace via self-promotion skills. They're super fun. So if you ever have a chance to attend one in your area, I suggest you to do so because it's also open not just for women, but men or anyone that feels in any situation as if they are a minority. And not just this, but Google has many other women-specific actions They require a gender-balanced pipeline in new job openings. There's also a gender-balanced interview committee in all of the the job openings as well. And then a diverse lineup of speakers at all events. Yeah, this is great. I'll do a link on the show notes for the I Am Remarkable website. Perfect. Thanks for that feedback, yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised so many people have actually participated in this. I'm just looking at the numbers. Like I said, 20,000 plus in 2018 with 1,100 workshops in over 50 countries. Yeah, it's exploding. Wow, that's awesome. What are some of the most promising technologies related to data science and analytics? I think all of the democratization taking place in machine learning is remarkable. Because if we can make this more user-friendly and intuitive, We can make it available for all and applications can become more far reaching and more powerful. So I see that happening as it becomes easier to access, it becomes cheaper to do. We can expect lower entry barriers into the market. Um, And since we spoke about data cleaning earlier, 
I really hope for new methods, platforms, technologies, whatever they be, that can help minimize the time spent by data scientists on things like data cleaning so that they can really focus their efforts on more creative tasks or analyses. And lastly, another thing I see us eventually achieving is quantum computing, which would theoretically allow us to make incredibly fast, complex calculations, thus opening more possibilities in machine learning and AI. Yeah, that's very exciting. For people interested in data science and just wanting to get more appreciation for you know specific topics there, do you recommend any sources? Yeah. So in all of my classes that I teach at IE, I always finish with a list of resources to continue studying data science. Because I always get that feedback, people asking me how they can continue to learn about this. And it's important that you continuously study in this field, you continuously refresh your knowledge, because the field is changing every day. So there, there's a lot of different options you have. I would suggest the website Analytics Vidya, which is hosted out of India. And it's for learning everything analytics related. You can also get involved with real life data science problems on Kaggle. You can take coding courses on all of the MOOCs available. So you've got SQL on Solo Learn, R on DataCamp, and then the Python for Everybody specialization on Coursera. And as well as an extra tip, I would recommend following on social media a few leaders in the field to stay up to date with developments that they post. You can follow people like Andrew Nigg. He's the king of machine learning and a co-founder of Coursera. There's also Cassie Kozarkov. She's the chief decision scientist at Google. And then also Kate Strachny, who is a whiz in data visualization, and she's a host of Story by Data. Yeah, thanks for those resources. I follow some of those people as well, and they're just so insightful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Christina. I, I you know, want to thank you for your time. You know, do you have any other advice for students or professionals interested in data science careers before we uh, call it a day? Yeah, my last piece of advice, I have to throw this in here, is to read books. It's such an obvious good habit to get into that most people just don't do it. Um, I host a hashtag book a week challenge on LinkedIn where I share my weekly book recommendation. So for those wanting to really get into data science, I suggest reading books on the subject, and they don't have to be technical, boring books. There are plenty of super interesting reads, and I'll give you two of my favorites. I'll share two of them here. So you've got, for example, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. And there's also Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. Thanks for those recommendations. And I love that second book. I haven't read the first one, but Weapons of Math Destruction is a phenomenal read. I would suggest you reading the first one then because that's my like favorite book of all time. Okay. Unrelated to it being about big data, it's just one of my absolute favorite books. Yeah, great. Okay. All right, Christina. Well, thank you so much. If, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best place for them to reach you or contact you? LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn and I try to always get back to messages. So feel free to send me a message or a connection request. Okay. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. All right, folks. So there you have it. Really great episode with Christina. Tons of solid feedback and resources that she provided and just very unique experiences that she's had. 
Make sure you follow Christina on LinkedIn so you stay up to date on her speaking engagements as well as her book a week challenge. Stay tuned for my next episode in two weeks. I'm really excited to have Matt Dancho on the podcast. He is the founder and CEO of Business Science, and he's the lead data science instructor at Business Science University. I am personally taking one of Matt's classes right now to develop my R-Shiny skills, and he's just an excellent educator. Matt's focus is really to teach data scientists how to apply data science to business. That's his LinkedIn tagline, and it's very true to his mission. Really excited about that episode in two weeks. All right, folks, I will see you soon.